Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. At Discount Tire, we know your time is valuable. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online. Did you know Discount Tire now sells wiper blades? Check out our current deals at discounttire.com or stop in and talk to an associate today. Discount time. Let's get you taken care of. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It's the Marketer's Report. This week, Patrizia Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on the difficult task of building and retaining consumer trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy. And we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. The best thing for us to do is to build a relationship with our consumers. And if those consumers have a relationship with the DJs that are on air, then we want to build on that. House of the Dragon, which was one of our most successful, if not the most successful campaign we've ever done for a show, audio was a core part of that. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. Not just a media company, iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Just a change in me, something in my liberty. Oh, oh, my, man. Happiness coming and going. I watch you look at me, watch my fever growing, and I know 
just where I am. How many corners do I have to turn? How many times do I have to learn? All the love that I had was in my mind. But I am a lucky man. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now floating once again in Screamer Celica. It is an honour to say that me and Paul have managed to... Well, we not managed to. We just never gave him the DeLorean back, that Kevin Graham. That is his name, right? I forgot. I can't even mind what he looks like. I'm not sure. To do the show, but, a, um, a mustard bobble hat from time to time. I remember <laughs> that. But it is the Boise and Dixie combo for the second week in a row. We're going... We fast-forwarded a couple of years for last week, but it all kind of ties in a wee bit because it means that we're sort of getting to... We're getting to the sort of end game for what I think this this era of team was looking for, you know, under under Tommy Burns or out the Lou McCarry da- darkness. I went to a new era back at Celtic Park with a you know a foreign sprinkle um, now beginning to take shape in the team amongst you know a lot of other players that are perhaps now more established in the Celtic squad that we were talking about as you know hot shots last season. So the game we are covering. <laughs> Zinko, I love it, mate. <laughs> we never gave him it back. Um, the game we're covering tonight is one that really stuck out vivid in my memories of being a child uh, and going absolutely ballistic in the living room, not at the game, Paul. I hope that's all right on the show. Um, and it was Celtic 2, Dundee United 1, March the 10th, 1996, Scottish Cup final quarter, eh, Scottish Cup quarter finals. Um, First things first, we left it late. Uh, but we are just talking off here there, Paul, about we felt this was the sort of surge of optimism that was about to come to. Let's be honest, when you, you look at Celtic as a whole, or you look at a certain era, you've got to then look at what the knock-on effects of maybe eras without as many trophies then led to. And, you know, we're now getting, we're in the mid-90s now, and we've now got a manager all the fans have bought into We've now got Fergus McCann getting involved with the club and saving it from the brink. We've now got foreign international players in the team from none, uh, countries none more so than Germany and Holland, of course, um, and now in the starting lineup at good ages as well, not these young projects that drive me nuts all the time. Um, we've, we've got this and it feels like there's something happening because we're very much playing the rip-roaring uh, style of football that we love. And you only need to look at, these were the building blocks happening there that has led since then to two decades, whether people like it or not, of, you know, absolute dominance. Mm. You know, when you look at what Celtics went on to achieve, and this was the foundations of all that, and I think we started to see how the new look, the new modern world Celtic was going to look. Just want to get your thoughts on that first. This was... um a transitional period. You just have to look at the footage and I know we'll talk about this when you see the stadium, for yep. example. It was a transition period in terms of the creation of that Tommy Burns side. But in many ways, this was the finest season under Tommy Burns. Now, like you say, I'd already started going to the games um, as a season ticket holder. 
Yep. By the way, we that's a big that stamp, the big stamp yep. of approval. Yes, season mm-hmm. ticket holder. Uh, but that was all down to Fergus McCann because he he introduced a different way of thinking, a different culture within the Celtic fan base in terms of season tickets. I mean, we spoke about the kinds of figures that you were talking about pre-Fergus. 1989, 6,000 season yep. ticket holders. First season under Fergus was at Hamden, 17,000. We then come back to Paradise. And then it became the norm, Boise, to become a season ticket holder. So the whole thing was, it was definitely feeling like a transitional phase. But that team there that you've got, you're, you're spot on when you say that there was the stardust, as I know you like to describe it as, <laughs> being sprinkled uh, onto the largely domestic-based squad. Yeah. And I, I made the point just before we came on, um, I remember you know, looking back to when we won the Scottish Cup, in 1995 against Airdrie, and I've spoken about that, Rudy Vata had forced his way into that side, uh, of course, Albanian internationalist. Prior to that, Celtic didn't have many overseas players. I mean, you, no. we, we can't call Republic Island players foreigners. You know, they, they weren't. They were basically Irish players that played with Celtic, and there was plenty of them. Um, so when you're looking at, you know, the, the two Polish players, Jackie and Shuggy, uh, under Billy McNeil. Prior to that, Johannes Edvaldson, uh, Bent Martin, who, by the way, I don't even think he played. I know we signed him uh, after he impressed against us in Europe. But very, very few overseas players represented Celtic. And then all of a sudden, there was this real um, conveyor belt of uh, players coming in and it was down to Tommy Burns and this is the thing just looking yeah. at this game and looking back uh, the, the foreign policy of bringing players in started under Tommy really in earnest and obviously some of those players uh, were pivotal to this particular game but even then the vast majority of the squad were Scottish you know, you yep. look at that Celtic squad, quite a few of them had come through the ranks, Boise. Uh, others had been domestic signings from other Scottish clubs. Yep. Uh, but as well as the aforementioned uh, Rudy Vata, uh, in that squad we had Morton Vikost and we also had Pierre Van Hoydonk and Andreas Tom. Uh, mm-hmm. But these, these guys were new recruits. You know, they had signed in the season and later on in the season, uh, famously, we also brought in George Cadet. Um, and I'm sure we can mention a wee bit about that later on so it was a time of optimism you thought it's a matter of time before we win the league you go through this league campaign and lose one game and you you think to yourself it's going to be next season you honestly thought it's going to be the following season that we're going to win the league that's what you thought and then you start looking at the fact that you've got the impact of Cadet you bring in Di Canio you know people going about the three amigos and we'll talk about this as well Boise Sometimes they say the three amigos, but you forget about Andy Tom. Andy Tom was a supreme footballer. Mm-hmm. You know, he was the first mm-hmm. Eastern German player to be capped by the Unified Germany. Um, when we brought him in, it was something there queue. And I can only use uh, an example that was given to me by someone who at that time was a young kid at Celtic. Uh, John Potter, who's now at Hibs, he's Jack Ross, he's number two. And he said, without a shadow of a doubt, that Andreas Tom was the best striker of football he had ever seen. And, and quite yep. frankly, the best striker of football at Celtic Park at that time. And I think we saw that for ourselves on this particular occasion in this game. Well, I think it's interesting because I was obviously looking at, we like to give a bit of background. It's not just about the one individual match as such. So doing a bit of digging in the transfers that we'd made sort of that summer. Or you forget, of course, no transfer window, Paul. 
mm. which I found quite interesting. There was a couple of things that struck it st- stood out to me. Was we sold a player very regularly throughout that season. Players left for mm. what you would describe as nominal fees. We can go through them just now. So Charlie Nicholas had left late summer. Paul Byrne even later in the summer. Tony Mowbray then left for three hundred thousand in October. Then Jamie McQuilkin for one hundred fifty grand. Barry Smith a hundred grand, fifty grand for Mark McNally. Remember you touched on last week the Willie Faulkner one for two hundred thousand mm-hmm. pounds. Um, and then Andy Walker left in the February. So we were almost continually selling players as the season went on, which I think at times, seeming clubs are struggling. I think this is going to become quite relevant, maybe, you know, with the COVID stuff. I don't know, and maybe maybe in other leagues, uh, maybe in Scotland, you know, you think it's a brilliant vehicle to have that throughout the season. If you're struggling, you know, you look at the lack of revenue a lot of these clubs, the loss of revenue a lot of these clubs have had recently. Imagine if they do get in a sticky point through the season and be able to sell an asset, but okay, less than what they would like to. But not having to wait three, four months to a January window or hang on for dear life, if not, you know, as long as they make it to the to you know the close season window opening again. Hmm. I found it quite interesting. I'd almost forgotten about signing players, you know, because it's been I think it's been sixteen years or something now the transfer window's been been going for. And it's something I've completely, for, you know, not forgotten, but you just get so used to it. I suppose it's like the pass-back rule. Just rules that you just take completely for granted in football now. And I find it quite interesting that Celtic were systematically selling players almost, when you look at it, they sold a player a month is pretty much the ratio of that whole season. Mm-hmm. Which is, I just find that fascinating. It is, and when I'm speaking to people like yourself from your uh, era as well, boys, I sometimes forget that, that things I take for granted, changes in the game like the pass-back rule, like the introduction of windows for transfers, haven't always been there for you, you know, uh, you know, for me, but they've always been part and parcel with the game for yourself. Uh, and I sometimes forget that, but some of the players you mentioned there, I mean, Charlie Nicholas went to Clyde. He started sporting a ponytail. You might not remember that. So I he was, do remember. He was now Rangers. And I think the game was maybe alive. And it was on Sky. Yes. I remember watching it. Yeah, and he's just gliding about with this ponytail, uh, which is uh, something to behold. I mean, Charlie had some cracking hairdos, as you know, and that was uh, one of the best. Uh, Paul Byrne, how we lost money on Paul Byrne, I'll never know, because we, we spoke about him last week coming in as a 90 grand bargain basement player. We actually lost money on him, and he teamed yeah. up uh, with Mark McNally at Southend. Mowbray went to Ipswich, ended up playing alongside players like Stuart Slater and Bobby Petter um, at Ipswich Town, and you know others uh, within that. We've done all okay, I think, to get half a million pound back for Andy Walker around about that time and of course Mike Galloway had to retire through injury after being in a car crash uh, Lee Martin Lee Martin left and I had to check there because I couldn't have told you where he went after Celtic and it was Bristol Rovers but um, uh, he's a guy who obviously had uh, a decent career at Man U but it, it was it was hampered by injury you know by the time he came up to Celtic but you're right I don't know why. I don't know what the reason is behind the transfer window. Is it really just to add another Hollywood element to the, the season? I mean, what is the reason for the window? Is it something obvious that I've missed? Um, it could well be something that uh, certain clubs might have to, you know, if, if it wasn't there, they, they could use it to their advantage to survive or, you know, um, 
and other other teams could strengthen, I guess. But uh, at this moment in time, we are within a transfer window, as you know, and um, we're doing a lot less business within that short period of time than we would over uh, an entire season, that's for sure, at the moment anyway, Boise. But I, I think what... Tommy Burns was doing, he was certainly um, streamlining the squad and he was bringing in quality because you look at the players he was bringing in and every single one of them added something to the to the team. Even uh, Yeah, absolutely. And even though they were all first-team players, weren't they? Even though John Hughes, I always felt, was a stopgap. And uh, he was actually a stopgap for Alan Stubbs eventually. But, you know, you look at the, the quality players we were bringing in, you knew that he was building something at that stage. I think it's important, though, as well, when you touch on that. I think sometimes you need that. You only need to look. Brendan Rodgers literally brought Colo Turian for a Champions League qualifying campaign, <laughs> essentially. You know, it was like, we need someone and we need them in now. And I always liked Hughes when I was growing up. I always liked him. One of those players gave his all and all that. I like, I like, John, I like John, I, I've, I've always liked Mark Hughes. Well. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to get it in, mate. Always. Um, but yeah, so... Looking at the squad, the first 11 that started that day, and you're absolutely right, it's still predominantly a Scottish team. Mm. We've got Gordon Marshall and goals who me and Kev gave pelters to a few weeks ago, I'm not going to lie. Um, Jackie McNamara, a new signing, £650,000, who, I mean, it's a shame that Henry Larson cost the exact same amount, otherwise he would be the best £650,000 player you could have imagined. The years of service as well. And the variety of positions he played in. I mean, he he's worth a show in himself, Jack McNamara. For me, I thought he was becoming the reincarnation of him under O'Neill as well. I mean, we've been a rabbit hole already, but the reincarnation of him under O'Neill after looking like he was on the periphery, then coming back with the captain's armband at Ibrox. Great story. Love it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, John Hughes and Brian O'Neill. It's the Marketer's Report. This week, Patrizia Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on the difficult task of building and retaining consumer trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy, and we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. The best thing for us to do is to build a relationship with our consumers. And if those consumers have a relationship with the DJs that are on air, then we want to build on that. House of the Dragon, which was one of our most successful, if not the most successful campaign we've ever done for a show, audio was a core part of that. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. Not just a media company, iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Am I right in thinking he went on to Munchen Gladbach, was it? Uh, Listen, I'm not going to check that and I'm going to say Wolfsburg. But uh, I will, I will now check. I will now check to make sure that that's the case. But he definitely went to Germany, didn't he, Brian O'Neill? Yeah, Brian O'Neill. Um, Not one I remember as well. I remember him at the time, but I, I wouldn't be able to tell you if I thought he was a good player or not. But he was obviously held in a, a decent regard if he's going to the Bundesliga. You know, I uh, me. Yep, go on. I just think with, with Brian O'Neill, you know, I remember him coming through as a young player, but he'd already made a name for himself in that under-16 World Cup squad. Um, So you knew about him because I was at the game in the semi-final against Portugal where he scored the header uh, that got us through and that was at Tynecastle. And, you know, he was one of the guys, I think, Brian O'Neill, who, you know, we didn't quite know where to play him. 
So he played a lot of games at centre half. Um, I think he came into the side as a midfield player. He ended up at times being um, deployed up front. He scored famously the winner at Ibrox in a 2 1 game that uh, was officially Lou McCarry's first game in charge. Yeah, he did end up playing for Wolfsburg, right enough, and he was capped by Scotland. Yeah, but I just think with O'Neill, he, he was probably, he had a good career. You know, he did well uh, in Germany and he ended up in England. Yeah, Derby. I remember his, his debut actually was in a friendly against Spurs uh, under Liam Brady. It was Liam Brady that introduced him to the team and uh, him and Mark Donaghy were the two young guys that came through and they played against Spurs. A Gary Lineker, um, Naeem inspired Spurs. I think we won that wow. game. 1-0, one, one I think. Na- Naeem, was he signed because he scored in the, was it the Cup Winners Cup final against Arsenal for about 50 yards or something? Was it the same one? That's the same guy, but that was after oh. his Spurs career, actually. Was that after? Ah, yeah, oh, wow. that was that after his Spurs career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice one. Midfield, Simon Donnelly, Peter Grant, Paul McStay, Brian McLaughlin, mm. and then the sprinkling of the magic dust up front, Andy Tom, and a certain Pierre Van Hoydonk. Pierre Van Hoydonk was a player I wanted to talk about tonight, Paul. Yes. And... Uh, I remember when he signed from NEC Braid, I remember his debut it was against Hearts. Mm-hmm. I scored an absolute fizzer. It was a belter a strike that. Um, Van Hoydonk was a, a guy, it was funny because it was like the three amigos for all the fond memories you've got, you obviously always associate them with contract refusals. Were they perhaps a bit moody, to say the least, maybe in some, some cases? Were they in it for the dough? Or did they get the Celtic bug? Now, retrospectively, as a lot of players tend to do, you hear an interview with them and they, they cannot wait to talk about the time at Celtic. But is that always the reality? Is that how it was when you were there? It's hard to tell. Um, we obviously, we know the terms that he, he, he left on. But talking about his actual presence in the, in the Celtic squad whilst he was there, phenomenal uh, goal record that he had with us, wasn't it? Aye, definitely. We we spoke the other day when you were in the studio, Russell, about how vivid certain memories are in your own mind, but it's certain things that you yeah. remember about football. Uh, so I spoke to you about going to the games, and that had been after a long period of time where I wanted to go to the games, but my dad obviously didn't want to take me because that was his release from the drudgery of five long shifts doing a pit and there's no way he was going to be dragging me along with him for a period of time eventually started going in 87 and my memory was that the bus we went on parked the usual miles away from the stadium and then you had to walk down London Road and basically my job was to follow a pair of sambas and it was my dad's <laughs> pair of sambas through an absolute, you know, forest of legs. And you just kept an eye on these sambas all the way down London Road because you didn't want to lose your dad. And he knew that's what you were doing all the way down the road. And then the smells once you get to the burger vans and everything else. So you've got your own vivid memories of the games. And I've got a vivid memory of Van Hoydonk's debut. So I'm, I travelled through that night on Jokey Munyon's bus, 
Jokey Munyan, great guy, absolute legend from the five, the five villages. Yep. The thing with that again is that with a lot of um, Irish names, they changed over the years because a lot of the uh, Irish coming to Scotland were illiterate, as as a lot of people were back then. They were coming off a boat, they were given their name, it was misspelled, blah blah blah. So uh, Monaghan became various different versions of Monaghan, and one of the versions was Monian. And, and there's a family, the Monians, who live in High Valley Field in Fife. Um, so he used to drive the bus. He was from Blair Hall, but he went in various wee spots in the West Five villages picking people up, taking us through the game. And this is, again, shows you all about eras, Russell, and how you start taking it for granted that as soon as that team is, is announced tomorrow against Sheffield Wednesday, one click on your phone, you'll see what the team is. Back then... Celtic sign a player called Pierre Van Hoydonk, right? And you don't have the same means of finding out information about this guy. So at that time, you did rely on newspaper reports, right? So yep. you're reading as much as you can on him. You knew we had signed him from Breda and you didn't know a great deal about him. You all, always got the Celtic view on a Wednesday. Um, I remember it was something as pivotal as how do you spell his name? That was one of the features in the view. Um, honestly, th- th- it was like you can spell it either with a Y or an IJ, you know, great. Can he play? That's all we want to know. But when we signed him, like you quite rightly said, we played Hearts that night at uh, Hamden because we were playing their home games at Hamden Park. But on the way through to that game in the bus from Fife, everybody's talking about this fella because nobody knows him. They don't, we don't know who he is. And that was part of the magic. He could have been an absolute dumpling for all we know. right? Well, and that's the interesting thing. Sorry to come in, but that's the interesting thing I want to touch on. You talk about different eras, right? Now, Flip it into modern day, flip it into modern day Celtic, and we sign a guy from the Eredivisie who's got a record of 81 goals in 115 games. Wow. And they're they're 25 years old. I know. We would be pretty excited, I think, and probably looking at, and I wanted to touch on this as well, because this is why I love doing this show, because see when I'm looking at transfer fees from. 95, that meant nothing to me growing up. Although as much as I remember his debut, and I can vividly remember it. Mm-hmm. Same with Cadetti's debut, I remember that. But transfer fees don't mean anything to an eight-year-old, nine-year-old boy. You know what I mean? They don't. I don't understand it. So he was £1.2 million. Now, I'm trying to think of the growth in the transfer market in terms of the inflation, the overinflation mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, and then putting that into context with his track record, which was 33 goals and 69 at RBC, and then, which I'm going to guess, were either top flight or second top flight in Holland, and then 81 goals for any seat. This guy's got over 100 career goals already in around 180 games. Now, we're bringing him in at 25 years old. I'm going to guess he's on the, the minds of the Dutch national team by this point because of the impact he's making. And we sign him for 1.2 million now. Obviously, you then tie that in with Celtic have been close to the brink. We tie that in with Fergus doesn't like spending money. And you're trying to work out the bang for the buck. And mm. I'll leave that to you. But I just wanted to try and... There's the sort of quandary I was in today, trying to work all that out. Do you know what I mean? Oh, definitely. At that time as well, you, you think about other players of a similar... Um, worth a similar value who had come to Celtic. So we hadn't done too well 
when it came to £1 million plus signings. I think by that stage, probably the only one who had done a really good job for us was John Collins by this stage, you know, and and he had signed way back in 1990. So, you know, five years before, four, sorry, yeah, four years before Van Hoydonk comes in, right? Because he signed in November, didn't he? Um, 1994. Is that right? That's just from yeah. memory. Aye. And so... At that point, we had signed Collins, who was absolutely a hit. We had signed Stuart Slater, who was a miss for 1.5. You know, Gary Gillespie came in for a million. Tony Cascarino, 1.1. Tony Mowbray, 1 million. I would give Tony Mowbray a pass, I've got to say. I think he played enough games. He had a big impact. He just didn't play for a successful side. But we had had signed £5 million-plus players before Van Hoydonk, and I would reckon only two of them were successes. Mm-hmm. Collins a big success, Mowbray a, a kind of medium success. So you were looking at that, it was a bit, it was still a big signing, even though it was only 1.2 million, mm-hmm. it was still a big signing and it got you excited. Uh, I later found out because I read a lot of autobiographies, um, reading Kevin Keegan's, that, um, you know, we had this idea in our mind and, you know, it was true that Tommy Burns had a phenomenal kind of scouting network and part of that scout network was the European scouts and David Hay was involved in that yes. and Andy Ritchie was involved in it and in that filing cabinet we later found out identified by the scout network and Tommy Burns was Paul Lambert and Craig Burley who weren't signed by Tommy but they were, you know, the legwork had been done um, so I read in Kevin Keegan's book that uh, Breda or Van Hoydonk's agent had sent a videotape, a showreel of Van Hoydonk to every top flight club in England, plus Celtic and Rangers. Um, and obviously Celtic mm-hmm. fancied it. But I know that we watched them because there was a policy in place. Um, there was a policy in place that uh, Fergus McCann had, which was if we were going to sign a player, we had to watch him in so person. This, this is what I'm getting at, because they just can't envisage you know, an unknown quantity getting an investment like that from Fergus McCann, you yep. know? Mm-hmm. He joins, and it was actually January 95, he makes his debut against Hearts, I think it was January the 10th or something, right? And he goes on to score four goals in 14 games in his first season, right? But we get to the 95-96 season, and he is a Rolls-Royce of a striker by this point. We better talk about the game. So, obviously, we're 1-0 down to Dundee United after absolutely battering them first half. Ali Maxwell may as well have collected the man of the match award at half time. Mm-hmm. That is the reality of it. But like I've always said to you when, when we do this, I always get nosy about the opposition. Eh? I always get nosy about who's playing for the other team and getting out of these surprise. They're in the first division at this point. I heard sure the comment I heard the commentary team saying that. And Aye. I, you know, I was going to check whether they were in the first division or they'd just been promoted, been promoted. from the, the first division. But looking at the, the Premier League right now, I'll tell you, and uh, you're right, yeah, they were still a first division side at this point. And they've got Craig Brewster up front mm. with Gary McSweegan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm going, you know, they're both two players I would always associate in my, my memories of being... SPL strikers, obviously I know Bristol went abroad for a while, but mm-hmm. that would be Morris Malpass is playing at the back. You know, there was there's strength in there. Celtic took them to task that first half, and I just felt watching it, did I see a micro what's the word a microcosm or like you know when you just see like the whole season in one that first half? Brilliant football, great to watch. But you know But winning nothing. No, you're right. Winning nothing, not getting yep. the ball in the net. 
And it's like, I can't remember what that word is, but it's the word that I would use, a microcosm or whatever it is, something like that. And that's to describe that first half feels like the tale of the 90s, either the, the 95, 96 season almost, or, you know, the, you know, one defeat. You're going, this is this is unbelievable, one defeat. And you've, you know, you've lost the league, not even, you know, four points you've lost the league by in the end. Mm. Um, and I just wonder if at times, just, but then the, to flip it, Van Hooydonk's scoring goals for fun. Was he getting helped out in the goal trail as much? I think the big thing here when you look at it is it was quite clear. You know, you, you've read the Celtic team out on the bench, Malcolm Mackay. That shows you how thin we were at the back. Now, mm-hmm. uh, when you think of the Tommy Burns teams, you think of the three amigos, you think of Tom, they're all attacking players. And you don't think of a great goalkeeper. If, if Tommy yeah. Burns had a great goalkeeper... We'd have won the league that season. You're only talking, I mean, four points, 11 draws, right? So, yeah, Van Hooydonk's banging the goals in. Yeah. I mean, even in this game, Gordon Marshall tried his best to, to sell the jerseys. You know, gives away the penalty. Ridiculous. Gives away. The, I know he saves it, right? But it was hit straight at him. And, um, you know, I just, I've, I've said this before. Stuart Kerr was coming through at the time. Pat Bonner was on his way out. He'd been given a, an additional maybe 18 months by Tommy Burns, a couple of years. Uh, and our number one was Gordon Marshall. And this, for me, was the reason that we didn't win the league this season. And I'm not blaming him per se as an individual, but it was a defensive issue that we had. So you look at the first thing that I noticed was the state of the pitch. It was uh, what Fran Alonso would describe as a tatty field, right? <laughs> Um, but you look at that Tommy Burns side and we talk about the rip roar and, and the, the entertaining the free flowing look at the two fullbacks, backs one signed for the pars one signed for the jambos up and down the wings that's a Wrong. traditional Celtic element you know the yeah. overlapping uh, fullbacks, and it's something that some people say, you know, it started with the Lisbon Lions. It was probably its most prevalent at that stage with the Lisbon Lions, with Jim Craig and Tommy Gemmell. But Donkey Mackay came before, and, and he played in great sides before, you know, uh, the Lisbon Lions and before Jock Steen arrived. He was an overlapping right-back. Some people reckoned he invented the, the overlapping right-back. Duncan Mackay's wow. name was. And so that was a tradition at Celtic after that, wasn't it? I mean, you look at the, the right-backs from Jim Craig, he was replaced by Danny McGrain, who was replaced by Chris Morris in the centenary year. That's only three right-backs for the 60s right up to the centenary year. Incredible. That, but that, that became a tradition. And when you look at some of the play, I mean, Jackie set up both goals in this game against mm-hmm. Dundee United. He wins the ball for the winner. We'll talk about that. But it was his play on the right-hand side. He won the free kick. He lost the free kick in for Big Pierre. But he... And, and McKinley were playing in the finest traditions of Celtic Football Club up and down the flanks unbelievable engines uh, and I was going to say brilliant in the attack as well but what a what a chance McNamara had one on one with Maxwell and he about hit the corner flag with um, but I just think when you're looking at it the key for me if it's four points right then it's down to no being able to turn a draw because we drew 11 games into a win often enough and sometimes that was because the back door was in the shot Gordon Marshall and the centre defence the central defensive area were weak I mean we started that game with Hughes and O'Neill you know that that for me is not a strong enough back line and Tommy Burns knew it because he went out and spent big money on Alan Stubbs the following season £4 million pound, wasn't it on, yeah. on Stubbs I think you're absolutely right and I think but that's a rational, a rational way of looking at it. I think 
obviously we had a great show and we spoke about when Cadetti broke the broke the radio waves and all on Five Live. I love all that. Of course, you've got. And he does to this, Boise. Oh, so good. <laughs> but I think there's the the flip side is you know I don't I like to be in the real world right and look at what we could do better. But you've got to admit that the Cadetti was potentially the the game changer. The same way you're talking about the back. Put him in the team for some of those draws. And there's your point called back straight away because it's not like he didn't hit the ground running. Um, I think he got five and eight at the tail end of that season. You know, he he was off like a greyhound, you know what I mean? Straight out the traps. Um, well, so there's two elements to it. There's you're right. a bit hard done by. Oh, massively, um, massively. But undoubtedly, we need to look at our flaws. So the first, the equaliser scored by Van Hooydonk in the 89th minute, towering header, straight down. Van Hooydonk was a player at that point who could mix it, but also had finesse, Paul. Regarded still as one of the best free kick takers of all time. Um, I had a far better strike rate than David Beckham, which I remember it was, I found that out at high school before Rangers played Feyenoord. It was a quote, it was said on the tail of the radio and I said, better not give him a free kick tonight. I mean, he's got a better strike rate than David Beckham. I went, that's the, that was the part I told, I don't know who'd said it, but someone had said it. And it was like, shut up, he's old, he's rubbish now. And of course he went and scored two, two yep. carbon copies. Mm-hmm. But watching his career after Celtic, it's funny because Van Hooydonk, he could have went horribly wrong for. He goes to Forest, they, they get relegated, he smashes it up front with Kevin Camblank, he got 25 goals, something like that, or 34 goals in fact he got. 34 goals in the, they called it the Championship. I mean, again, would that be a player we let go for three and a half million that would be worth 15 at that point with that many goals now? You'd, mm-hmm. you'd be kicking yourself. It's the Marketer's Report. This week, Patrizia Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on the difficult task of building and retaining consumer trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy, and we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. The best thing for us to do is to build a relationship with our consumers. And if those consumers have a relationship with the DJs that are on air, then we want to build on that. House of the Dragon, which was one of our most successful, if not the most successful campaign we've ever done for a show, audio is a core part of that. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. Not just a media company. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. I switched to Boost Mobile and got a free Samsung Galaxy A23 5G phone. Want to know the best part? Uh, it was free? Nope. The fact that it's on America's largest 5G networks? Nope. It's the ding. Oh, yeah. Love the ding. Right? It's all about the ding. It's the dingarooski, the dingarona, the ring-a-ding-ding. Unleash your power to save with Boost. Get a free Samsung Galaxy A23 5G phone when you switch. Boost Mobile. Unleash your power. And the ding. Limited time offer. New customers only. Available on select networks. 5G not available everywhere. One device per line. Tax excluded. Additional restrictions apply. See your local Boost Mobile store for details. But of course, then he does his strike thing. And I remember that so vividly that he, he basically, they were selling the best players but wouldn't sell him. So he just he just went and started training with NAC Breda again. Refused to play. Um, that could have been horribly wrong for him. He ends up coming back in. He goes back to Holland to rebuild his career at Vitesse. 25 goals one season there. 
Before you know it, he's in a big bucks move again. He's in Benfica. He's there for a year with George Cadetti up front. Incredible. Eh? <laughs> Always a Celtic connection. Um, he gets 19 goals there. And before you know it, he's back uh, Holland with Feyenoord. They then win the UEFA Cup that season that he scores the two past close. He then goes to the Turkish Premier League and is apparently one of Fenerbahce's favourite players of all time. He's like a legend over there. Smashes smashes the goals, wins two uh, Turkish Super Leagues, which turn out to be the only top flight leagues he wins in his career, which I found quite quite interesting as well. But I wonder, with there's two sides to it. You look back and you think of the three amigos and cult hero, mm. or... Is it really befitting of a Celtic player when you look at how we were formed to be making quotes like seven grand maybe of use to a homeless man but not an international striker? What did that, when that was said at the time, again, I've got no context to these quotes, do you know what I mean? I vaguely remember that I'd probably heard a bit later on in my life about the quote. When I read it, it was a wee bit familiar, but I'm trying to think back again. We're in the time machine, 1996, and he's saying that to force his move out. What sort of taste does that leave in the Celtic fans' mouth? I, I mean, just as bad a taste as it would now, to be honest, what the, the difference is... Apparently and allegedly. <laughs> but the thing is, Boise, back then, I mean, you were basically just, uh, you know, talking in a very, very small echo chamber. So, you know, if you had a view on something, you're talking about it within a household, within a pub, within a supporters bus. You know, so... It was difficult then to to gauge collectively what the Celtic support was feeling. And even then, I mean, because you couldn't do that through the pages of the Celtic View. You certainly couldn't do it through the mainstream newspapers. Um, And the, the fanzines were monthly. So, I mean, it all goes back to technology and, and what content creation was back then. So you would get letters written and sent into fanzines. You would have great kind of editorials in the fanzines. I've said it a million times, not the view was my go-to. And so, yeah, Celtic fans certainly didn't miss them when it came to comments like that. But let's be under no illusion. I, I had some great memories of Van Hoydonk. Watched his yeah. debut, uh, tail end of that season. I thought, and I've not checked this, but I thought he scored nine goals at the tail end of the first season. He certainly scored against Airdrie in the final, oh, the scored, famous one. He scored eight, four league goals. Four, four league goals. So eight Sorry. in total. It's all right. <laughs> and always remember, um, one of the things where you know that Celtic fans have taken you to their heart, like Willie Faulkner, who are Willie Faulkner, is you have uh, a song uh, for an individual player. Pierre, there's only one Pierre. And they used oh, to sing that. this. And I always remember a big mate of mine um, who, I don't know if I went to any or many games with him, but we both had season tickets and we went to school together. We played football together. His name is Wes Thompson. Uh, and big oh. Wes, you know, he bore a striking resemblance to Pierre Van Hoydonk. So when he used to come to see me at half time for a pie and a blether, and he was walking down the hand and turnstiles behind the goal, the Celtic fans used to sing to my big mate Pierre and he would go down and give it the Hulk Hogan, Hulkamania so I had, I had great memories of Van Hoydonk but let's be under no illusion, the guy was a mercenary bottom line, total and utter mercenary and not only that comment 
Um, he went to Turkey. He's obviously at some point seen Nadir Chiefje, and he convinced Celtics to spend millions of pounds on him as well. But That's right. he was a mercenary, a total mercenary back then. And and you know, there's some occasions I think where players are done wrong by the the Pravda machine back then. And and love them or loathe them, Charlie Nicholas. You know, for years Celtic fans thought. He couldn't get out of Celtic Park quickly enough, but the story was slightly different when you hear it from both sides. And that happened as well. But in the case of Pierre, absolute mercenary. And he just used yep. Celtic. You know, no doubt about that. Yeah, and it is interesting because I think these people then come up and they promote the Scottish Cup or something like that. Do you know what I mean? With the sponsor boards in their hand and they talk about it being the happiest time of their life and things like that. And I always feel... I feel with a lot of the, the football interviews you see, I feel a lot of revisionism goes on with players and perhaps it is though real because you can only take people at that point in time where their head's at and maybe it does take you to look back and go, actually, that was brilliant. So it's maybe telling the truth now, but I always found it interesting because I always had the vibe that he was following the dollar his whole career. I mean, the list of clubs I've just told you about there, Paul, two spells at Feyenoord they end up having to went back there after, um, after Fenerbahce. So... Benfica, Forest, or an EPL club at the time, Celtic. Uh, you're you're thinking of those signing on fees, mate. You're moving almost on an eighteen month basis. You're 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 joining another big European league, another huge club within that league. He must have made a pretty. But no wonder he wanted to be an agent. I'll tell you this much as well, though, right? Um, as much as we've we've praised uh, the late great Tommy Burns for starting the the real influx of foreign imports to Celtic Park, what came with it was a culture and an attitude of this mercenary footballer. Because when Celtic you look at that, yeah, you look at you look at that Celtic squad as it is back then. Um, players such as Peter Grant, even Collins. I mean, Collins eventually left after giving Celtic good service. Paul McStay. These guys. You know, there, there, there wasn't a mercenary nature to them back then. Um, and we associated that nature to the imports, Russell. But now I look at football and it's right across the board. It doesn't matter if you're domestic, if you're a youth player that's come through the ranks, homegrown. It's all about the dollar. And that's the biggest and saddest uh, element of this. When you look back, there was still an element of innocence Back then, there was still an, uh, an element of players like Jackie McNamara, and this was obviously his first season. He went on to get a testimonial because there was the loyalty. Exactly. There was that loyalty which is um, missing in the modern game, and it doesn't matter if it's an import or if it's a domestic player. It's just part of the game now. And we see behaviours of footballers, and we, you know, on and off the park that you just think you think you're untouchable. You don't really care about any one club, um, and I think th- there's a great analogy that was given about how um, a dog is uh, loyal to its owner whereas a cat's uh, loyal to its environment and you think you know at the end of the day the cat doesn't care who's feeding it you know and I think footballers are a bit like that No I think it's a brilliant point and I think you know when you look at modern football now it is littered with Van Hoydonks mm-hmm. absolutely littered with them now he was maybe ahead of the curve in that way he maybe thought you know, go there, and then you move, you kick up a fast, you move there. I keep getting big checks every time I move, as well as, I'm going to imagine, monumental wages that like to Forest were fighting to stay in the Premier League, I think, when he joined them. And the EPL riches had really started to kick in then with Sky and stuff as well. You don't go to clubs like Benfica and Fenerbahce on buttons either, are you? So, 
it's interesting. I mean, his goal record fifty six and ninety two overall for Celtic. It's a decent strike rate, isn't it? He did a lot of good, but he left. I just think he left a bad taste in the mouth with the nature of his. <laughs> Don't go there. Don't go there. Bad taste in the mouth. The thing again, it, it was the three amigos, and this is what Fergus was getting at. I think the one that I've got a bit of sympathy for is George Cadet. Right or Cadetti, uh, whereby he, I don't think, was a hundred percent making the decisions in that that scenario. Um, he was being dominated by his partner at that time, That's and we right. found that out after the event. But at the time, it was all they're all as bad as each other. The three of them are the three amigos. But I got told a really interesting story by Tom Campbell, the great Celtic historian, who uh, obviously lives in Canada. And Tom does things like if he wants an interview, sometimes he'll just go and chap the person's door, right? Because that's how he operates. And if Tom Campbell chaps your door, you would let him in because he's the nicest man on the planet, right? And he, he, he found out where Fergus McCann resided in Canada. And this was, you know, let's say in the last 10, 15 years, he thought, yeah, I'm going to go and ask him for an interview <laughs> for a book that I'm writing. And, and then he, he described the area of Canada. I, I can't say for sure where it is. And at the bottom of this long road, um, at the top of the road was where Fergus resided. At the bottom of the road, there's a tavern called the Three Amigos. He says, now that's either a really big coincidence or that's something that was in Fergus's mind when he coined that phrase when speaking about the aforementioned Three Amigos. That is brilliant. I love stuff like that. That's Aye. too good. Too good. Brilliant. Anyway, I think that covers the football. I wanted to do a wee feature on Pierre. We've covered the stadium. And, you know, what, well, that is one other thing I wanted to talk about. So, the stadium, obviously, you notice when Andy Tom scores that fantastic win in the 91st minute. We're looking at a Celtic Park still very much in progress. As nice as it is to be home from Hamden, I want to know what the parallels are like, because see when you watch that, if you can't see that stand that's in getting, you know, all the work done to it right at that point in time, and you just hear the noise, you're convinced Celtic's done. Like if you just had that as an audio, Celtic Park is done. It's complete. The 60,000 stadium vision has, has came to the fore, and we are now in that beautiful stadium at full capacity. Mm. Of course, the actual attendance is 32,753, I think it was. So, what was it? Double it. You know what I mean? Double that. And and that that crowd, Boise, later in the season, blew the radio waves. Imagine it was double the decibels. It's incredible. It is. And I wanted to get, from your point of view, like you touched on last week, because I think you're saying you became a season ticket holder. You're now probably, is this your first season at Celtic Park? Or maybe yours? First season as a a season ticket holder. Um, Yeah. And... I had started going in 1987, like I said before. And this is where my Celtic supporting life's been synonymous with Tommy Burns because the first game I went to was Tommy Burns' testimonial. Uh, first time I got a season ticket, Tommy Burns as a manager. First oh, yeah. trophy I actually physically seen us lifting was the 1995 Scottish Cup under Tommy. Um, so when you go back, I think what's happened is there's a, there's a great video, and we'll cover this at a later date as well, called We're Back. And I think we play Newcastle, and it's the opening of the it's opening of the North Stand basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you're there, you're just so glad to be back. In actual fact, back at your spiritual home after a really poor season at Hamden, that it didn't really matter 
that there was temporary stands and, and so forth and things were still being constructed because it was your first opportunity to get in the stadium and see what Fergus McCann had seen. To actually yeah. see it, you, you'd seen the pictures and, and all that kind of stuff and the Celtic view was always showing you the progress of Celtic Park. Mm-hmm. But you wanted to be there, boys, just to see it. Even though it was unfinished, yeah. you wanted to see this cathedral just growing like a phoenix rising through the ashes. Like, you know, and uh, that vision, like uh, I was saying to you before, that memory of walking down London Road and following the Sambas from behind. Um, when you walk down London Road now and you get that first that first vision of the paradise. Um, it's just incredible because that foresight and that vision was Fergus McCann's. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, so as amazing as all that is, what I'm wanting to do is contrast and compare then. When you're getting an atmosphere generated like what we were at this match that in particular we're talking about, or the Cadetti one later in the season, what was it like then when you first went in and it was 60,000? What, I mean... It was a, it was more of a cauldron. I know that sounds kind of obvious, but uh, again, some people might not like what I'm going to say here. But I remember walking into Ibrox for the first time and feeling that the atmosphere was different. It felt more kind of like enclosed, almost like you were in a like a theatre rather than an open air event, if you like. Yes. Um, and of course, my first open air concert that I ever went to was at Celtic Park as well when I went to see you too in 1993. But that feeling. Um, of going into a full house, I've got to say, it was more of a cauldron, but I had felt that when I had gone to Ibrox before. Um, and I'm not going to try and compare and say that their stadium is better, but let's be honest, Celtic Park was a decrepit um, stadium and you know we had no decadence at all about it previous to the rebuild. So when you went in and it was enclosed like that, take that a stage further, Boise, imagine it was enclosed further with the, the roof being, you know, level all the way around the stadium, encompassing the main stand. I know. And, and I think that that development, I think Peter Lowell said that would cost £17 million of an investment um, to get that that extra tier, really, to redevelop the main stand properly. There's no um, way he was going to do that. <laughs> no, they not. And it's one of the things that, is, as much as I love the stadium as it is now, um, I'm just, I'm, I always imagine that the roof being level all the way around Aye. and taking it to another level again. So you've seen the atmosphere that, that it was, the atmosphere that you got when you went back, the racket that could be created um, and closing all that tremendous. But imagine taking it up another notch and I think you could do that. I know, I agree with you. I mean, it's got to be exciting, even the thought of something like that, definitely. As you say, when you've lived through it, when you've went, well, we've seen it when it's been, you know, 32,000 for an absolute riot and then it's doubled five years later to 60,000 I mean mm. you didn't think of the potential if you developed the main stand what would you get up to 70, 75? 75 and you know you could do the sums I guess you know in terms of how long it would take to actually uh, come back. back how many games would need that capacity I think that's what the club are trying to balance in Scottish football you've got two home games that would guarantee to meet that capacity, you know, European games, depending on which European platform you're playing on, because not every European game sells out. So obviously it's a balancing act. You know, it's the first thing that would happen if we ended up going elsewhere. Would be amazing. Would be amazing. I love that. We'll get on to the music, Paul. Um, Shall we? Shall we? Why not, mate? Why not? Golden, golden era, mate. Golden era. 
This week on The Marketer's Report, Patrizio Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct-to-Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on building trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy, and we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. As the number one audio company, iHeart Media gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the data you need to grow. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Well, it was. It was one that it was like, who would you choose from this when there was so many? And I just thought, I could be quite stereotypical. I go for at times. So I just thought, let's look at the charts this week. And number one was Morning Glory, which, you know, for as much as it, you know, defines or defines my musical taste so much. Nobody wants to hear me talking about Oasis again unless we do our own Oasis special, Paul, you know. Um, nice wee, nice wee hint. <laughs> <laughs> but... Alanis Morissette is at number two with Jagged Little Phil. Some now, just occur to me. Some's got occur to me. I will not stop you in your tracks, but I'll come back to it regarding right. Alanis Morissette's connection to Celtic. Oh yes, love it, love it, love it. I'm so going to write Jagged it down. At number two, and it goes on to sell 33 million records. It's her third album. The other two were a bit dancey. Apparently, I didn't have a chance to listen to them. Thankfully, but apparently they were a completely different sort of genre. So my takeaway from listening to it was, first and foremost, you forget about some of the bigger songs, right? Mm. Like, So the first track I didn't recognise at all, and then Ot and O kicks in, I thought, man, my foot's tapping, I can't like, I'm not going to lie, I like Ot and O. And then the other song I liked was Head Over Feet, which is where the title of the album comes from, because that's, that's where she mentions like a jagged little pill in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what my, my takeaway was, Music was evolving at this point in time. People were finding out a formula that was proven popular. I could be wrong here, but this is what I took from it, right? And chords and guitars were the part of the the, the, the formula to make a hit record. You've seen, this was the, around the time, the emergence of Sheryl Crow, things like that. Yes. Robbie Williams had released an album, I think, the year before, with tracks like Old Before I Die, which were very much based on the sort of three-chord wonder sort of technique. And I, I just mm. thought, there's a sound about the next... Meredith Brooks had that song called Bitch, and I remember that being very much of that formula as well. And I just think it's... I don't want to take out the from the musicians, because obviously they've got to do what they've got to do. In fact, it would be quite nice if there was a renaissance, even a bit of that, because it means even pop songs were half decent, even if you knew sometimes there wasn't much soul behind how they've came up with the, the formula. I dare say Alanis Morissette wrote all her tracks herself, fair enough. She was only 21 when this album came out. Incredible. Incredible. I think I you mean, make a great point. You make a great point there. The formula was your traditional, kind of like what you would regard as indie stroke rock music. It was for, yep. for somebody like Robbie Williams to come out of a boy band, right? And go more towards indie pop than just your, you know, your bubblegum yep. pop. I think proves the point. I think it's a great point. I never really thought about that. Uh, so when you see, when you, I was just thinking of the era and going, there's a lot of, you know, mainstream hits playing music of that sort of, that ilk. It was, it, mm. just, it just stood out to me. The album itself though, has a lot of very good tracks on it, right? Yeah. I wasn't as familiar and it just took me back to like summer holidays or Easter holidays at my house in, in uh, Celtic Park, sorry, my living room. And uh, like my mum maybe like doing like I don't know housework doing iron, 
and that being Blair Me an amazing sound system in our living room, which I always think helps you get drawn into music if the sound quality of it's really good. Songs get more of a chance on your palate, I think, than what they do if you're listening to it in the headphones, that you, the earphones that you got with your phone, for mm-hmm. example. For, if you know, if a rubbish song comes on, you kind of, you know, you just skip past it straight. Whereas you always give them more of a chance if you can hear all the instruments proper, you've got a good bass coming through. So we had a few big speakers sort of dotted about. And I always remember Jagged Little Pill was my mum's favourite at the time. I look back and think, my mum was only like 31 then. She's like my age then. Do you know what I mean? Which is insane to be thinking like that. Do you know what I mean? Like same age as me and I'd like me running about the house. That would be a nightmare. Do you know what I mean? That would be a nightmare. <laughs> So a lot of uh, a lot of nostalgia listening to Jagged Pill that I wasn't expecting because as I, as I say I wasn't familiar with the the titles of all the tracks. But then when she listened to you, went, oh yeah, I kind of remember that slower one. But uh, I liked, I felt her songwriting, her lyrics were very clever. She is way ahead mentally of a twenty one year old. Um, the, you know the song Ironic, which is obviously is extremely popular, is cleverly done, um, and it does show you the balances of everything that's kind of is, you know, on paper, good in life, and then you caveat it with, aye, but you'll become an arse, basically, if, you, you know, if you're if you loaded. Do you know what I mean? That sort of thing. So it was uh, it was an enjoyable album, and I'm sure if anyone who's watching does revisit it, they'd probably get, I think they'd get a bit of pleasure to it. Well, maybe just for that trip down memory lane. Well, you know, that's right. It's one of the things that, I always remember thinking about it almost being like a breakup album for women um, and they're basically yeah. just, they're venting at every man in the universe. Uh, but obviously, I'm not a woman, so I don't know if that is the case. Although I have been uh, likened to several as <laughs> doppelgangers. Um, but, you know, I'm looking at uh, that particular album and I'm going to have to share a wee story with you, Boise, right? Yeah. Uh, and just while you're talking... I had one eye on the lyric sheet of that particular album because I'm looking for the lyric that this is relevant to and I can't find it, but someone out there will be able to identify it. So Alanis Morissette, as you know, is Canadian. And uh, when she attended school, her English teacher was Tom Campbell. Tom Campbell, the Celtic historian, retired teacher. And he was Alanis Morissette's teacher and he taught her English. Um, So... He speaks about her in glowing terms and knew her family, good Catholic family, knew them well, uh, remembers that she was always musical and she was also into drama and acting and all this kind of stuff. And Tom speaks really, really fondly of Alanis Morissette. That's and amazing. Tom believes that one of the lyrics on this particular album is about him. I can't find the lyric. Something to do with oh, no. looking over glasses or something. I can't find the lyric. But... It, it does appear on the album because when Tom is telling me and when a guy like Tom tells you something it's the truth what's he yeah, got he's to prove he's about 84 years of age uh, but yeah Tom Campbell was Alanis Morissette's school teacher I love this man That's and he wrote brilliant. he wrote The Glory in the Dream which was a Celtic history book that was released in time for Celtic centenary season there it's is mad. always a connection there's always a link to the so famous good. Glasgow Celtic that's so, so good. That is, I mean, try to imagine teaching someone like that. Obviously, a big part of songwriting is your ability at literature and being able to write. If you'd been their English teacher, firstly, no wonder you'd be thinking, I better be in that album. <laughs> but secondly, secondly, 
what an amazing sense of pride. And I'm not trying to be cheesy, but you would feel like you've played some sort of small part. And and like, what did I just say to you before that? I felt the lyrics were extremely clever. Mm. I felt in a lot of songs they were ahead of our time. You know, you pick that up from how you've been taught English uh, to an extent, you know, and obviously then what music you listen to and stuff as well. But he's played a part in a 33 million record selling uh, album. It's one of the biggest selling albums of all time. I know, it's right? frightening. Yeah. I um, try to remember who I Oh, yeah, I was uh, watching an interview. I watch interviews, as you know, uh, all the time. And I was watching a Dave Grohl interview and he was talking about how a band in the UK feel, feel as though they've made it if they make it in the US. And he was explaining how a US band feels they've made it if they make it in the UK. I've never thought about it like that. And uh, Alanis Morissette certainly did. It was a huge selling album in the UK as well, Boise. I think I've seen her. I've seen her actually. Here you go. Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters drummer was her drummer at Tina Park. The Foo Fighters drummer was Alanis Morissette's drummer at Tina Park. Aye, definitely. Wow. There you go. So you've seen her live? I've seen it at Tina Park live, yep. What year would that have been? Same year Robbie Williams played, probably. Um, was that about the same time that Williams brought out his debut? He played, he came on with a Mohican, he came on with a Travis Bickle wearing a black Adidas tracksuit. Robbie Williams, yes. I have seen Alanis. He <laughs> <laughs> didn't wear it as well as you, mate. Yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> on, over to you, mate. Well, you know, you look at some of these years and you think, wow, that was a really poor year for music. And I've heard you and Kevin complaining about some of the later years mm. and how you're going to struggle to pull out albums. And then you look at this particular period. So what's the story Morning Glory sitting at number one in the charts? I could talk for hours about that album and its relevance to the soundtrack in my life. Uh, number two, Jagged Little Pill. Again, yeah, I agree with you. Great album when you listen back. If you just you you are not a music snob, Russell, which I like. And so, if you like a band that you know are cutting edge, you, it's because you like them, not because you want to be trendy or uh, right. you know in the know or all that kind of stuff. But by the same token, if you like a song that maybe is popular or or something like Jag Little Pill, you'll say you like the album. You know, you, you don't you don't care. There's no snobbery there. There's a lot of snobbery in music, isn't there? Um, so you look through the charts expecting to fly by the Blue Tones, I thought was a tremendous debut album, um, right along the whole Stone Roses kind of trail at that time. Yeah. Stanley Road by Paul Weller. Uh, some think that was his real return to form, even though Wild Wood had came out before it, which is a phenomenal album. Pulp with different class, you could go on. Unbelievable. Um, but I decided to go with uh, not history by Michael Jackson, but the Bands, the Bands by Radiohead. And the reason for that uh, was that, you know, also jollification by Lightning Seeds. Let's not mention the Lightning Seeds at this moment in time. Cast by All Change, um, Bjork came out with Post. Brilliant. It's just album after album after album. Uh, the Ghost of Tom Joad by Bruce Springsteen. But anyway, I went with um, The Benz by Radiohead. And the reason I went for, for that was um, I remember Radiohead kind of coming into my consciousness. And it was through a lot of albums at that time, Russell, through my brother. So yeah. my brother was working because he was older. He was working. There was that staggered thing where he had money before I did. He was buying clothes and records before I was. I went to the football before he did because I had priorities, mate, you know. Um, so 
the Benz. Um, I'd already been introduced to Radiohead through Pablo Honey, the debut album. And what I would suggest to anybody who maybe got into Radiohead or has got a passing interest in it is that the first three albums, mate... Now, I've, I've said this before on this show and elsewhere. My main interest in many, many bands lasts for three albums. I don't know why, but I just get into the band for three albums and then I kind of go somewhere else, lose a bit of interest. But there are some some bands that I stick with throughout their entire career, into their solo careers. I dig out their bootlegs and their B-sides and unheard tracks and all that stuff. But mainly, I'm into a band for three albums. And the, the first three Radiohead albums are just astonishing. So Pablo Honey, um, you know, if you read the reviews of the debut People think it's a flawed album. Uh, there's some songs on it that are generic. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it's a fantastic album. But it's famous for that single that was a worldwide hit, Creep, right? So everybody knew about Radiohead because of Creep. But then they released The Bends. And it's just like, I still, th- and I know that people will disagree, I still think it's the best Radiohead album. You know, every track on it, you just think, now, because of the the journey and the, the route that they went down, I still think they could write another Benz at the drop of a hat. I think they could write another Benz-style album in their sleep, but they choose not to because they're just so accomplished as musicians and it would probably bore them and they don't want to repeat themselves, so I get all that. But just for sheer bliss and accessibility um, and non-snobbery, the Benz, for me is Radiohead's finest album. They went on, obviously, to release OK Computer, which got all the awards and took yeah. them on this 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 journey of um, a wee bit more experimentation, I think. But they are still one of the finest bands of my generation. But that clutchy three albums, Pablo Honey, The Benz, OK Computer, is almost as perfect as the first three albums that I can think of. You know, the Verfid's an almost perfect first three albums um, and I think you know I, I think that um, Oasis the, although kind of flawed had three brilliant first three albums mm-hmm. but anybody that hasn't immersed themselves in those first three Radiohead albums go and do it outrageous mm-hmm. and this is the pick of the bunch for me yeah what's but, the highlights in the album well you could be obvious I guess uh, and go for a lot of the kind of big hitting singles um, but for was me, but it was on that. Was that? Yeah, fade in, and and you've also got um, you've got fake plastic trees, which no, yeah, 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 is is like a perfect song, a perfect, perfect song, and Tom York again, have a look, have a listen to some of the interviews that he's given. Uh, you know, from a very young age, suffering from a lazy eye, having to go for loads and loads of operations on that, and you know, being taunted and all the rest of it for for looking a wee bit different and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, right. um, he could have had operations as a young kid where his eye would have looked perfect, but he wouldn't have had much vision in it. So what he's gone for is is near to perfect vision, but obviously the, the eyelid and all that droops and stuff like that. But the guy's a genius. The guy is an artistic genius. And he's he's had tragedy. His wife died of cancer at a young age and all this wow. kind of stuff. Tremendous band, visually, uh, musically, and sonically. I mean, I just think 
on the one hand, I think, oh, I wish they would make another album like this. But on the other hand, you've got to admire the fact that they've pushed mm-hmm. the boundaries and pushed the envelope, album after album after album, never repeating themselves. So, brilliant. Anybody that's out there that thinks they're a bunch of weirdos, they probably are, but great music. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I think we will leave it there. That has been another over an hour again, man. Just like that. Always. Once you're floating and screaming, Selka, that's you away. You're just away, man. It's great. Thanks this is for this watch. is for a future episode, Dan the Man. We'll come back to this <laughs> this debate. We'll come back to this debate. We have got plans, mate. We've got plans. But no, a big thanks to everyone who's watched, everyone who's been in the comments. Hopefully Kev's gonna come out of the wilderness and be back next week. If not, I'll just keep holding the DeLorean for another uh, another uh, Tuesday night, mate. All right. Thanks again to everyone. Loved it. Thank you, Boise. Cheers. Patrizia Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct to Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on the difficult task of building and retaining consumer trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy, and we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. The best thing for us to do is to build a relationship with our consumers. And if those consumers have a relationship with the DJs that are on air, then we want to build on that. House of the Dragon, which was one of our most successful, if not the most successful campaign we've ever done for a show, audio is a core part of that. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. Not just a media company, iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Sports Social Podcast Network. 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 It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.